You can turn, please, in your Bibles to the New Testament and Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, we'll read from verse 1 through to verse 7. So if you have Second um, Timothy 3 before you, we will read from verse 1 to 7. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by furious lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. So it reads uh, the word of God. And Paul, as you know, uh, writes 2 Timothy from a prison in Rome. Uh, He's facing execution. He knows full well that he will not see the outside world again. And from that environment, he writes with truth and with uh, tenderness to this uh, young man who is his son in the faith, who is his colleague in the ministry, one of whom he writes off and says to the Philippians, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. You see, friends, Paul's pressing concern is that the baton of faith will be passed safely from uh, the hands of Paul into the hands of Timothy and from Timothy then into the custody of faithful men who will be able to teach the truth to others. And in chapter 1, he has urged Timothy not to be ashamed of him, the apostle, due to his imprisonment, nor to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for which he is in prison. In chapter 2, he has urged him to aim for God's approval, Now here in uh, chapter 3, he is exhorting Timothy to continue in the faith. And you find that there in verse 14 of chapter 3, but you must continue in the things which you have learned. In other words, he is saying, Timothy, you keep pressing on. Now what Paul is doing here is very realistic. There is no sense in which he tries to hide from Timothy uh, the hard facts which relate to the commission that this young man has received. It's not going to be easy. Any notion that serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the cause of the gospel is uh, an invitation to tranquility is, uh, is, is wrong by any stretch of the imagination. You cannot, uh, you know, get that you know, idea from Second Timothy. You can't even get it, you know, obviously from, from the Bible. Uh, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you're seeking to live godly in Christ Jesus, you are in, to say the least, you are in for a bumpy ride. And Paul is very aware of the hostility of the times in which Timothy is ministering. 
At the same time, he's aware of the timidity of Timothy in the midst of those times. And his great concern is that Timothy and others with him will be marked by stability and grounded in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, in light of this, it's obviously essential that the Lord's servant isn't caught off guard by the difficulties of his day, and in particular, by the perilous times. Uh, If you see it there in your Bible, there might be a little... uh, uh, letter or a little one beside perilous and I'll take you to a marginal note that will uh, render it stress you know stressful times and we were talking about stress in relation to peace uh, last week and anxiety in relation to uh, peace today and how the two things uh, marry up but uh, Paul is saying here that there will be stressful times Um, And he says, uh, in fact, that opening phrase there, uh, you know, um, but know this. Uh, That opening phrase is striking. But know this. Get a hold of this. Pay attention to this. Mark what I'm saying. Because what I'm about to tell you, Timothy, what I'm about to tell you, dear congregation, is not simply a possibility. This is an absolute certainty. There will be seasons or spells that are perilous, stressful, painful. And the reason being that opposition to the truth is not a passing fancy, but it's a permanent fixture. The truth has been, always will be, opposed. At times more intensely than others, and with different angles of opposition, but nevertheless, beloved, it will be impossible to live in any generation without the truth being opposed. And the terrible nature of of these spells of opposition is borne out in the phrase, perilous times. Now, we are helped somewhat by our understanding of this, by a knowledge of the original word, which is the, uh, the same word that is used in uh, Matthew 8, verse 28. Now, remember, in Matthew 8, verse 28, Jesus, Jesus passed over to the region of the Gargarines, and uh, Matthew explains about these two um, two demonics, uh, these folks that are demon possessed, uh, and he describes them in Matthew eight twenty eight. He describes them as exceedingly fierce. Uh, these violent individuals, uh, their brutality was such that people were afraid to walk past them uh, along the road. Now the word fierce. In Matthew eight twenty eight is the same word that's translated perilous in Second uh, Timothy three verse one. Fierce times will come. Perilous times will come. Fierce times in classical Greek it was a word that was used to describe the raging sea or the untamable nature of a wild beast. 
You know, Isaac Watts has a, a hymn. Uh, sadly, it's neither in Grace Hymns, Christian Hymns, or even in our supplement. But um, the supplement hasn't gone to print yet, right enough. But anyway, you, you might be familiar with this hymn. It's, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? And then in the second verse, he asks the question of those who are really seeking, um, you know, to be at ease in Sion. And he says, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sealed through bloody seas? And Paul is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's making it perfectly clear, he's saying, absolutely not. You cannot expect, if you're sincerely, you know, following Christ, serving Christ, you know, to seal the heaven in flowery beds of ease. Or to move from the directness of uh, Isaac Watts to the popular sentimentality of Lynn Anderson from a bygone era. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there's got to be a little rain sometime. And you know, the sometime sometimes can seem a long, long time. And the little rain. Boy, it can feel like a flood. Now, this little phrase, the last days, that can cause a sermon series to digress for months. It can cause a home Bible study to uh, go off on a tangent for a long, long time. The last days. That's a, uh, the favorite phrase of some people, you know, the whole topic topic of conversation with them is, uh, is the last days. They defy books on the last days. They eat, sleep, and drink the last days. Now, according to these folks, well, according to many of these folks, they take this reference, they take this instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy as something theoretical. Because after all, according to their reckoning, Timothy wasn't living in the last days. And so what Paul gives here is instruction for the future. It's not yet come, and so it has to be theoretical. Now, the fact of the matter is, it's not theoretical uh, material that we're dealing with here. Um, and you say to yourself, well, well how do you know? Uh, you know, these folks say it is you know, theoretical material, and you're saying it's not, Billy, who's right? You know, it's just a matter of interpretation. You know, boy, never fall for that uh, red herring. You know, how do you know uh, this is not theoretical material? Because the Bible is the interpreter. So you always go back to the Bible. You know, anybody says to you, well, it's just your interpretation. You've got to say, well, actually, it's not my interpretation. Let's see what the Bible says. And let's read it in the Bible. Let the Bible be the interpreter. 
And so when you read the Bible, you see that uh, this is not theoretical. Why? Because Paul immediately applies this in relationship to Timothy's present. This is what you're experiencing, Timothy. This is what the church is experiencing. So Paul is not talking about something that is in a remote future. He's not talking about something... Uh, He is talking about something that is in the immediate present. Remember Hebrews chapter 1 begins, God who at various times and in various places, spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in, what's the next bit? Has in these last days. Spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through through whom he has made the worlds. Now remember when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and in response to the surprised crowd, who are surprised at what's happening, these people are talking in different languages. And the, the people are claiming that, you know, this miraculous display, this manifestation of what's happening is nothing more than uh, you know, drunkenness. You know, these guys have hit the bottle the night before. And uh, Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk, as you suggest, because it's only, you know, the third hour of the day. But in point of fact, this is what was spoken by the prophet Jewel. And what did the prophet Jewel say? In the last days. He says, uh, I, God says, I will pour out my spirit. And so, friends, it's important for us to understand that the last days, according to the New Testament, were ushered in by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be consummated by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, clearly, there will be last days to the last days, culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ and the the man of lawlessness that uh, Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians. Um, But that's not our primary issue as we look at this uh, passage tonight. This portion of scripture uh, centers on epochs that occur and reoccur throughout history, perilous times, stressful times, terrible times. Spells that will inevitably reach an intensity in their clarification between light and darkness and truth and error prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, that's why some of us do think that we're in the last of the last days. But I say that very conscious of the fact that saints in every age have felt like that. But uh, what are these perilous times? What are they marked by? That's exactly what Paul goes on to clarify here. And the conduct that he exposes in verses 2 through 5 is a classic description of moral decadence, as can be found anywhere in the Bible, perhaps other than Romans 1, 21 and following. But uh, there are 19 marks to these perilous times. Now, if I was to take them all tonight and spend three minutes on each of them, we would be here for the next 57 minutes. And you would be saying, Billy, information overrode. 
tiredness uh, would impact many of you, and the whole thing would be a disaster. Okay, so you have to be realistic. I could take one a week for the next uh, 19 weeks. But taking uh, harvest services, anniversary services, SGA conferences, and a couple of other preaching engagements into account, one per week for 19 weeks would take us up to about the end of February, beginning of March next year. In which case, we would never get to the end of Second Timothy. So I'm going to take verses 2 to 5 as a block rather than focus on each mark individually, okay? So these 19 marks, really when you look at them, they're 19 marks of self-worship. Now, any time you see an individual or a society worshipping at the shrine of self, then that society is in deep, deep trouble. And so it goes without saying, beloved, that our society is in deep, deep trouble. You know, such a narcissistic um, society we live in. You know, this type of activity that we read in these 19 marks is before us now. We can see it. So how are we to view these 19 characteristics? Well, there was a New Testament commentator called Donald Guthrie. He taught New Testament at uh, London Bible College from 1949 until his retirement in 1982. Uh, From 1978 through to 1982, he was uh, vice principal of, uh, of the college. But he suggested that the the first two marks supply the key to understanding the other 17. In other words, he says, when people love themselves, and when they love money, then all the rest of the ugly list follows. Another way to view them is to take the first characteristic, people will be lovers of themselves. And then the last one, which is, uh, you know, Lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. And to see the remaining 17 sort of marks or characteristics is a filling of a very sort of distasteful uh, sandwich. John Stott says, um, if you look at this, you can see the way in which these several, uh, these things reveal themselves with respect to ourselves as individuals. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful proud blasphemers. In other words... When I love myself, when I am preoccupied with who I am and or with what I have financially, then it will almost inevitably be accompanied by self-assertion. And that self-assertion will manifest itself in boastful, proud and blasphemous behavior. It's a very ugly and unseemly picture. And as you continue in the list, as Dot suggests, it expresses itself, expresses itself not only in personal terms, but also in relationship to family life. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. It's not nice at all, is it? And what's this saying? Well, in these times, youth loses all respect for age. Youth fails to recognize the debt and duty that it owes to those who give it life. Youth 
fails to stand on the bus for the elderly. Uh, now, I'm not, and I don't think Stott was knocking youth, you know, right across the board, because there are some youths that are very polite, well-mannered. Uh, Ribbon's a wee gentleman, so he is. And uh, Jemima's a young lady. Uh, so we're not just tarnishing youth with, uh, with this brush. But we, we know that um, youth who are not brought up in a godly home, not instructed in the things of God, um, the world impacts them in a sad, sad way. Youth no longer stands when the teacher enters the classroom. I remember when I went to Orangefield Boys in 1969, uh, the headmaster, Mr. Mr. Stanley, I think his name was, but he used to wear, you know, the, the academic gowns and the mortar board walking down the, the corridors. And when he came into the classroom, you had to stand when he, when he came in. And apparently, um, it used to be in the school that even when the teacher came in, you had to stand. But then they did away with that. It was just when Mr. Stanley or Mr. Weston, the deputy head, came in, you had to stand. And, and Mr. Stanley, he retired, I think it was Christmas 69. So Mr. Weston took over, and he scrapped, he scrapped the, the standing bit. Now, looking back, I think that was detrimental. Um, and I didn't know at the time, and I don't think they knew at the time either. But it was a reflection of Leviticus 19.32. Leviticus 19.32, stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere God. And so it's just a further moving away from a biblical standard. And the sort of impeccable nature of this rebellious streak in society is identified in the words that he uses. When he says, uh, you know, these times... You know, they're bad and they're totally lacking in unthankfulness. You know, they, these folks lack thankfulness. They, they lack purity. They lack in normal human affection. And you look at this list and there's only one explanation for the explosion of these vices upon society. And that's the unrestrained nature of sin. And the only answer for this is the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, when we identify the condition and call it what it is, then you can declare the answer. Jesus Christ. You know, when, when we fudge the condition, we have no answer to give. And by and large, what's the condition of the church like? In the UK, in fact, in the Western world, indecisive, fudging issues, silent on matters it should be clear on. And rather than, you know, giving a clear sound, like the trumpet sounding the warning, there is mumbling and bumbling and wringing the hands. Well, you know, if people want to be called a boy and or a girl, but don't want to be insensitive. Now you call it what it is. And there's just so much fumbling, isn't there? The time is long gone when the church needs to stand up and say, you, might not, you may not like this diagnosis, 
but I'm going to give you the diagnosis anyway. And you may not like the answer, but here it is anyway. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and to set people free from their, you know, lost state. And with respect to society in in general, these folks have neither the power necessary to control their tongue nor their appetites. They just spew forth all kinds of filth, don't they? And that's why I referred to Romans chapter 1 earlier. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 says, Even as they did not like to retain in their knowledge, uh, God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They hate good, and they conduct their treachery with a recklessness which fills them with conceit rather than with shame. My beloved, the final sentence in verse 5 makes it clear again that Paul has not been describing something in the remote distant future because he says they have a form of godliness but deny its power. So from such people turn away, have nothing to do with them. Like Paul is obviously not calling for a total avoidance of sinners. The only way that we can totally avoid Sin is obviously to go to glory, but, you know, we have to be able to reach sinners, obviously, converse with them. Uh, But these individuals from whom we are to turn away, you you will notice, and we've seen this in our little study of Jude and Wednesday night, those who have a a religious dimension, and this is the, the staggering thing. It's not just the culture out there, okay? It's not just society out there. But let's not miss this. Look at the staggering dimension. These individuals actually have a religious face to them. Just like you. They can be found in the household of faith. They can be found in the church. These are not outright pagans. You know, they're not outright atheists. These are people marked by these characteristics. And if you saw them, they would be involved to some degree, in some kind of religious framework. They actually have a form of godliness. But their very lifestyle and speech denies the profession that they are making. Their religiousness is just a shell, it's a sham. You know, all the way through the the prophets, God is addressing such individuals. And you can read about it in... uh, In Amos, you can read about it in Isaiah, you can read about it in uh, Jeremiah. Um, You find these individuals popping up left, right, and center. They're really the forerunners of the the Pharisees whom Jesus condemned. Jesus looked at them and he said, you know, you like to uh, make the outside of the cup clean. 
and attractive. But what a tragedy. Because you think outside as well, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You don't realize that inside it all reeks, stinks to the high heaven. My friends, while the mercy of God does indeed extend to the repentant sinner, always to cleanse, always to restore, always to forgive, the most stinging condemnations of Scripture are reserved for the religious con men, the self-righteous who never repent. They are reserved, those uh, rebukes are reserved for those who have an external approach to religion, and yet their lives are like dead men's bones. If you ever get underneath them, if you begin to see what they're really like, then they will reveal in their lifestyle that really they deny the very things that they proclaim. Yeah, for all its faults, the uh, CAV, you know, Book of Common Prayer, does have some good sections. And there's a category which refers to the individual who is, quote, an open and notorious evil liver. It's hard in a postmodern culture to know who this would be, since there's no absolute standard by which we may judge evil or who's notorious. But you know, back in the 16th, 17th century, when they penned the prayer book, they just said it as it was. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible describe it? That's good enough for us. And what was supposed to happen to the open, notorious, evil liver? Well, the person who lived that way had to be disciplined. And uh, if they didn't listen to the discipline, brought to the congregation, congregation informed about it, and they were actually communicated. Uh, They exercised discipline against the notorious livers. Sadly, the CAV isn't doing that today. Uh, when you get the likes of, uh, um, what do you call it? Well, your woman who sits on their... Uh, yeah, it's the one, yeah. Yeah, notorious sinful liver. Should be disciplined and put out. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen because of an absence, not because there's an absence of these notorious livers because of confusion and compromise. We need leadership within the church. And what's the strategy of these folk? It's exactly as Jude describes it and as Paul describes it here. It's to creep in unnoticed. In this case, they creep into the households and be a captive of gullible women. I'm resisting strongly the temptation. But it's of interest that Paul does not use the standard term for women here. Now, so this is not Paul being misogynist. Uh, there's no disparagement here against, uh, you know, women. Paul indicates that in the use of the very word that he uses here. It's certainly referring to a type or category of women who display both an intellectual capacity and a moral capacity a failure to distinguish, you know, what is and isn't sin. And certainly rather than rush things and dig myself maybe into a hole, 
Uh, I'll stop there and come back to this in uh, three weeks' time because next week I'll be in Eastern Europe. The following week's harvest, and then we'll come back to this and uh, look at it then.